Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Associated Podcast. Um, I'm Tunde and I'm joined by my delightful co-host Francesca. Hello Francesca, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I think it's the middle of the week actually, a bit unusual as we're normally recording on, on Mondays and it's it's nice because I feel like we're getting to the end of the week whereas with Mondays it's like full on uh, have a full day of work then you have the associated podcast recordings and then a full week ahead so it's it's nice that it's a good Wednesday and I have a half day on Friday so I'm looking forward to yeah a shorter week how come you have a half day I am off to Vienna okay I won't ask any more questions um, but <laughs> all I will say is I'm jealous <laughs> yeah, I, I'm also quite happy. It's a midweek episode. It's nice to have not been depleted by deal flow before I record. So our guest is getting the best versions of us. And with that, maybe we should introduce our guest. Who do we have today, Francesca? So I'm very, very excited to welcome Sebastian Johansson, an investor at Founders. Hi, Sebastian. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Great to be here. London is actually much better than usual. We still have a bit of late summer here so happy about that and Arsenal won last night so it could have been worse yeah great to be on the podcast great to have you and uh, you know it's, it's quite fun because I think both Francesca and I know you separately from our travels in the wild world of venture so pretty excited to be recording with you finally and uh, take some of those off the record conversations and put them on the record it feels a bit confusing to see both of you on the same call with me to to be honest but you know yeah, it is what it is, I guess. Nice. Actually, it would be quite fun to say how we met each other, actually. I believe with me, Seb, we connected over LinkedIn, right? And I think you just said a very nice note along the lines of welcome to, you know, congrats on your role at Project A. And then we picked up a call and the really nice thing is we can't, I think, uh, bi-monthly or six-weekly catch-up sessions which I really enjoy about sharing deal flow. Tunde, how did you meet Seb? I don't remember. Well, I do remember. <laughs> uh, no, but Tunde, we met because you you published this uh, medium post about how to break into VC and I reached out to you because you hadn't specified where you're going to start and I think I just pinged you like, you know, loved your post, where you're going to start and we started talking from there, I think. And especially the fact that you were relocating to Sweden from, from the UK as well was obviously quite interesting because I've done the opposite move. So, yeah. Nice. And you gave us a little bit of a hint there of some of the countries you've lived in, but it'd be great to have a little bit of an overview of uh, your career to date. I think on the contrary to some people that I know who, you know, both in this space and people I went to uni with, and it would sound like I'm quite international. I'm actually not. I grew up in the same place all my life until finishing high school. I did an exchange here in the US during high school. I think that was about it. That you know, maybe a bit more outwards looking in terms of where I wanted to move after finishing. So I grew up in south of Sweden in a, in a place called Helsingborg, which is on the Danish border. And yeah, I then went to the US to New Jersey at a, at a boarding school, which is an interesting experience. It's like a scholarship thing. And then, yeah, after after high school, it's like war. I want to go abroad, but I'm not sure I want to go to the US. The UK is probably a good bet. Ended up going to Warwick, had a fantastic time there, and actually started working for, for a startup back home in Sweden during my time at Warwick. And that was definitely my intro to the whole startup and VC world. I knew very little about it before coming there. And, you know, the whole process of even getting that gig was very much like classic hustle way. I 
emailed a guy that I knew was running the local incubator in the city and asking him whether I could like work for them during the summer because this is I was doing like I switched to Greece half well after my first year meaning that I had like a summer where I couldn't do traditional summer internships so I had to find something else and I emailed him saying you know I, I just want to get exposure to some something interesting this summer are you guys by any chance you know open to taking on and they said the incubator was closed that summer but they actually had uh he knew some guys that were building something and uh, yeah put me in touch with them and started working with them and it's a really interesting experience to see literally from the inside it was probably the equivalent of a garage startup in the sense that they were four or five people um sitting in a in a tiny office uh very nice view though by the water but you know it's still a very tiny office and just got things off the ground had a small tech team in Poland as well but got to work with well the CEO and the CMO because they were basically the only people there and it was just super interesting to see from the inside what it's like to to build a company and they're now actually doing quite well I think they're 50 60 people got a you know big nice office down in Malmö so yeah really really great to see that journey from the inside and the things that that happens from the point when I was there I started there in 16 and so five years ago so a lot of things has happened since then but it was a in the contact industry so like uh product management for, for construction companies. But that was it. And then that was my intro and I got to learn what a VC was because they were fundraising at the time. And yeah, that, that entered me to the, the whole world of the VC startups. So I did some traditional stuff. I did all the spring weeks and I was uh, at a long time, I was set on doing you know the classic consulting or banking or something like that. And that I think the point where I had to make up my mind a little bit was during uh, summer, like when you do summer internships in 18, I had to choose between consulting and banking and went with consulting. So I closed the door on banking. And then during that internship, I was very much aware that I didn't want to do consulting either. So I didn't have much more. Well, basically the, my conclusion was, okay, I should probably start to try to go back into the, the startup and VC well, which was a much better fit for me personally than, you know, the, the more corporate environment that's in uh, consulting firm and same same with investment banks from there on it was always set on you know I either want to be in ops role or a startup or potentially in bc i think in my last final year or so i didn't really expect i was gonna be able to break into bc straight out of uni it just happened really a coincidence i was actually unemployed at graduation and then i met my friend who said that you know uh, we got a mutual friend hugo he's he's stuck starting at where he's currently at GFC in Berlin. You should maybe speak to him because I know they're looking for people. Reached out to him, he put me in touch with, with Max Meyer. So his manager is a, was an investor and we shattered for a bit and then, yeah, ended up starting a few months later. So that was basically how I ended up in BC. Spent like four months there. It was like an off-cycle thing. And then I went to DN Capital in London. Got to see a completely different side. I think GFC's pre-C very early, lots of very heavy on the on the sourcing side of things and, you know, very early deals. So a lot of the classic LinkedIn sales navigator stuff, while DN was much more A and Bs, uh, diving much further into models, being much more uh, granular in your analysis and producing these very long decks uh, <laughs> for DD and that sort of thing. So I uh, had a great manager there called, called Tim, who I worked closely with on top covering SaaS and the Nordics. Um, so really valuable experience. And then COVID hit also at the same time. So I was mainly remote. I spent one week in office. And I remember we started chatting about, oh, there's this thing happening in China. 
you know, people are getting ill, what's going to happen? People had all these theories, like it might spread on surfaces and we had to get like extra cleaning and stuff. And it's just very weird vibe. And then after my first week, we literally closed offices and then I never came back again. It's a bit of a strange scenario. And then after that internship finished around summer, things were still pretty bad in the UK. And I got in conversation with my founders and they were hiring an analyst at the time. So yeah, I said, why not? Let's let's go back to Scandi for a bit and you know things were better there, figure things out. And also I thought that you know they had a really interesting value proposition in terms of being early stage again, which I wanted to do, and also get closer to the Scandi ecosystem and, and work very closely with founders. So yeah, I decided to do that and that's where I am right now. And it's been really great. I've been here for a bit more than a year now. But that that's my journey from basically my hometown to living in a few countries. So yeah, Berlin, London, um, Midlands as well, outside of Birmingham, uh, where work is, the US for a bit, and uh, Copenhagen, Sweden, and, and now back to London. Yeah, that's that's story. Yeah, I, I empathize with you. I, I too started an internship maybe four weeks before the pandemic struck, trying to you know, navigate all of those new relationships while remote is, yeah, is, is something I wouldn't look to do again. No, I mean, it was... I didn't mind it per se. I think COVID, me personally, it's been like actually not too bad because I had to like, one, I was in Scandi for most of the time, meaning that I didn't have too many restrictions to think about. But two, also it made you like start reflecting a lot more on what you prioritize and what you want and what's interesting. And, and it was also nice. It was a really easy way to build a network, I think, because people were super keen to jump on Zoom calls because we're a bit socially starved as well so it's really easy to build relationships and now you get the opportunity to meet all those people in person which is which is great but and also the, the whole flexible working i'm fully remote in london right and i doubt that would have been possible without covid at least not right now maybe in a few years time so for me it has been like positive in terms of my working environment because i'm i'm much more productive in a, in a remote environment i feel like and really enjoy the, the flexibility that, that comes with remote work so from that point of view it's definitely been Impostive. You mentioned a few <laughs> things about bi-founders, namely because it was earlier stage, which is something that appealed to you after having a taste of it, of, of growth at DN Capital. And then also them allowing you to work pretty remotely and relocate to, to London. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about their thesis, average ticket sizes, the story, the, the work, so to speak. Sure. So no, we're, we're a journalist fund based normally out of Copenhagen. I'm the only one at the moment who's not based uh, in Copenhagen. We, yeah, very early stage, we do pre-seed seed. So like Icebreaker, but also do the, the stage after, right? So ticket size is probably, it's more a function of ownership, but I'd say perhaps 500k to 2.5 mil, I'd say. Journalists, I tend to focus a bit more on B2C models, so anything from consumer social to actually prosumer and B2C fintech, B2C digital health, anything where there's a sort of an end user that's also a consumer. And as a fund, we, the reason why I'm based in London to some degree is also that we just became more pan-European in our, in our mandate. So we went from purely Nordics and Baltics to being a bit more flexible in, in, in geoscope. So I look at, you know, everything across Europe at the moment. And that also occurs with us raising our second fund, which is uh, hopefully going to be 120 mil. And the last one was 100. We're still working on closing the last part of it. And yeah, that's that's the sort of basics, I think. In terms of how we differentiate as a fund, I think that's the more interesting part. Is one, everyone at the fund 
to some degree has founding operating experience. I mean, mine was maybe a bit limited working like a bit part-time in internships at, at this early stage startup in Sweden, but everyone has some sort of understanding what it's like to work at an early stage venture with Eric and Tommy, the two managing partners, having built and sold companies both here in, in the Valley and also working at, you know, Eric was a Skype and, and trade shift to Nordic unicorns as well. So that definitely adds to that, that larger uh, vision of being founder backed and founder led. Then we have a large collective of people as well, very much involved in what we do. So they're all also to some degree LPs in the fund with smaller tickets, but they definitely help out a lot on both the DD side of things and on the portfolio work. So quite often we see a setup where one of our portfolio um, collective members are part of the, the board. So for example, I'm working with a company called Smitten where I was uh, leading the investment. And then we decided to, to work closely with Heinesek Reason, who's the founder and CEO of Vivino. So he's taken our, our, our board seat and I'm staying on as observer. And then we're working together because he's he has a lot of experience from building communities and expanding to new markets and, and understanding a lot of the aspects that, that comes into building a, a great consumer consumer platform and consumer app. So that's one way we do it. But also in general, when doing DD, we're, we're only five, six people and we don't have strong sector expertise and everything right so being able to use to collect to help us getting a good understanding of a particular vertical or a particular problem in a, in a specific space is, is really useful as well so i think that's a really for us a very core strategic asset that we try to utilize uh, as much as possible and then lastly i think our timesheet is a bit of a differentiator so we've we've taken away most of the what we find maybe not necessary in the cap table shareholder agreement so we're taking away liquidation preference we're taking away anti-dilution and we we normally invest with common instead of prefs if there's no prefs on the cap table already and i think it aligns with our larger vision that we want to be building an equal partnership with the founders we're not just looking to come in and be financial investors and you know employ money but we want to work together with the founders we want to build a strong relationship and i think the only way to do that is by giving them the best terms possible to build a great company and also let them know that we're in the same boat and that, you know, we're, we're going to do what we can to, to help them get to um, the greatest place possible and fulfill sort of the, both the expectations and, and the potential that they have as a venture. So I think those are the main things that I would say differentiates us as, as a fund. But we're also quite now, I'd say, focusing a bit more on impact in fund two. So trying to both find more models with uh, a higher impact um, focus um also thinking about stuff like dni and, and trying to find uh more female female-led ventures uh, which i think is a, an important task as well to try to to average it out because it was interesting i saw there was something published the other day i can't i think it was sifted someone else uh, that published this overview of how many companies have been or some of the top funds have been uh, led by female and there's a quite a mixed bag and i think it's important to to keep pushing that narrative as well and yeah so i i think that's a lot of focus and then also, I'd say crypto and climate in general are two verticals where we're looking very closely into doing a bit more investing in as well. I think the two like sort of emerging markets we see becoming really relevant to have a high exposure to for the next one. Thanks for that, Seb. That was like a really, really comprehensive overview <laughs> of how BioFounders sees the world. One of the things you mentioned during that was that you as a fund are maybe doing more pan-European investments than you historically have done would you be able to unpack the the rationale behind that a bit sure i I don't think there's anything that's like necessarily changed i think what has changed is just that things are becoming more global and when we when we look at it 
and and try to think about it i think that we just realized that one there's a lot of good opportunities that we still could get into now we think boots on the ground is still important to some degree but i think there's still a lot more uh, that we can do that you know potential winners in verticals that we couldn't that, that wouldn't exist in nordics for example or in the baltics so getting access to those but also from a fund model perspective i think that we realized that with our current fund dynamics it, it probably makes sense to to try to diversify a bit more and that it would be hard to find 40 like amazing companies that we could both see and win in nordics and baltics over like a sh- quite short time period so also because of these dynamics right so one you have a lot more funds moving into the nordics because it's much easier to do deals you no longer need to be based on the ground but you know americans will be involved in, in pre-seed and seed deals that never happened i would say like a few years ago and also a lot more second degree effects of that in the sense that you know pricing is going up you also see that maybe there's like i think there's different waves in in the nordics as well that you had a really at some point you have really strong seed waves with the mafia from the big unicorns coming out i think in denmark we're seeing like a strong wave now i think the swedish wave was maybe one two three years ago and it goes in waves but i think the danish market is really interesting right now but same time we couldn't do 40 deals only in like Denmark. So it's, it's also to make sure that we can get the, the best returns possible, right? And we think that geography is no longer should be like the limiting factor in whether we make an investment or not. That doesn't mean that we're taking away, like the core focus is definitely still Nordics and Baltics, but we do want to have the ability to do deals that we think are really great outside as well. It's, it's so interesting because it's like everyone else is catching up or progressively having the same realization probably by virtue of the pandemic. I mean, point nine, we're doing investments in the US based out of Berlin about 10 years ago. But then if you spoke to almost every other seed fund in Europe or, you know, pre-seed fund, they would say, yeah, we only invest in our immediate locale. So it's, I find it quite refreshing to actually see funds maybe widen the net and be more true to, true to the hunt for quality. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the next level, which we're not at yet, that I'm seeing happening now is that previous European funds going into emerging markets as well, right? Like Africa, Southeast Asia, things like that, which is difficult. I think for our model and for our purpose, it makes sense to to have some like connection maybe to the ecosystems that we invest in. I think it's still difficult for us to do maybe a, a, a deal in Athens because of the, we might not have like a strong, we don't have any collective members down there. We don't have like a strong connection to the ecosystem. I think in terms of add-on and in terms of being like closer to the founders, I think sometimes it might be an angle of having some type of geor- geographical proximity. So I think when we say expand to Europe, I think it's going to be predominantly like, you know, London, Berlin and, and Paris to begin with, to, tr- to try that. But I agree in theory that geography, you know, shouldn't be the limiting factor. And especially if you have, high AUM and you have the resources and you have a, you know, slightly different investment focus. I, you know, there's a reason why Tiger is fully global. Why? I mean, you can do it in different ways. You saw Sequoia now, but they they set up, you know, Sequoia China, Sequoia India. I mean, (laughs) the announcement the other day (laughs) makes it quite interesting, but you know, it's, I think these large global funds, there's no reason why they should like stick to a geography. And I think we're seeing more and more also realizing that the infrastructure in some of the emerging markets is really getting very good and uh, if you looked at the latest yc batch for example i think it was like 10 15 african fintechs so i think there's a there's a real interesting movement or, or boom happening there that it's finally maturing to a point where 
foreign investors are also happy to uh, come in and, and, and do a bit of investing as well. We're not there yet, but at some point, maybe. Mm, yes, super interesting. And kind of talking about your points of the market is now really flooded with so many different kinds of investors and funds. And the the components you were talking about with your fund, so the, the collective uh, that everyone on the team comes from an operational background, that incredible transparency when it comes to the term sheets and making sure that your terms are in line with the founder's best interest kind of got me on the line of thinking you know what what makes a good investor i mean those three things that that networking component which it was clear that you you possess given that you knew both of us pretty early on and connected with us through various different channels that that ability to sort of know how to operate and equally have empathy demonstrate empathy from from the get-go from, from where it really matters are three things potentially that maybe you'd say are important for an investor, but would you say there are any other things that you would highlight? I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot and I've had a lot of discussions. I think there's different playbooks to be a good investor, but if you think about the junior side of things, I've been at three different funds and have slightly different roles, but I think there's two things that, I think there's two particular things that, especially at a junior level, I think, is one, the ability to build meaningful relationships both with other investors, with, with the companies that you meet and, and, and people in general in the ecosystem, and two, being intellectually curious. So actually being one of those people who go on a tangent and like start reading about space and get super absorbed in it, or just in general being happy to consider ideas that seems a bit far-fetched, because I think that's where more, most of the alpha is going to be in spaces which <clears throat> don't seem maybe like seems almost a bit unrealistic at first sight but that these guys are clearly in a position to to have maybe some unique advantage or something that makes them able to do what was previously impossible so i think having that intellectual curiosity and being open for kind of these somewhat seemable crazy ideas is and the ability to like um be super hyper focused on on particular spaces or areas and just having that going really deep into rabbit hole i think those two skills are really valuable as a as a junior vc in general and you mentioned as you said living in lots of different countries and i was curious to know you mentioned there what makes a good investor but did you have to change your style, the way you sourced founders, the way you connected with various people at different funds, depending on geography, or was it quite similar? I think there's some, there are some differences, but they're not as big as you might think. I think they're quite subtle. In terms of dealing with founders, I, I think it's not that big of a difference. I think, one, Paris is still useful to speak French, I think. If you want to do French deals and have like a closer connection to the French ecosystem, I find it more difficult as an outsider to do French deals. Well, Berlin and London, I, I don't find that same issue. And I think the same goes for Scandi that, you know, you can be come from the outside and still do deals in Scandi without. It's always, you're always going to have a little bit of a leg up if you're a local investor, I think, to some degree. But that doesn't mean that you can't come in from the outside and, and, and do good deals. So I, I wouldn't say there's a change in that. I think in terms of how funds are structured, I'd probably say, you know, small sample size, but probably slightly flatter hierarchy in, in the Scandinavian funds and also slightly different view on like work-life balance. But 
I think it also changes from fund to fund. So it's hard to be, you know, generalized and say that this is what it's like in this country and this is what it's like here. But I think those are two things that pretty much are the same also outside of VC. If you look at corporate culture, I think the hierarchy part and the work-life balance do change between like UK, Germany and Scandinavia, for example. That's it. Staying on the topic of investment styles or investor styles, what would you say your personal style is or do you have any do you have any unique lenses that you bring to bear when you're looking at, at companies i think in general i see vc especially at the early stage is almost like a it's almost as a sales job right you especially these days right where it's a market where founders have a quite easy time to get funded especially if you're if you're really hot i think that it's much more of an exercise of trying to prove your value as an investor and as a fund so you have to be quite good at sales. You have to be quite good at building relationships and that. I mean, that's something that I actually like doing as well, you know, speaking to the right people, both in terms of seeing how we can add value to the founders, but also having the relationships potentially with existing investors or potential co-investors and that sort of thing. So I think especially the earlier stages and, and it goes to some degree for later stages as well, I tend to be quite relationship driven. In terms of making investment decisions, I think picking in general is quite difficult as an exercise, especially at pre-seed. I mean, you could probably relate to that Sunday, but, you know, figuring out whether this company is the potential Decacorn or not at that stage where sometimes pre-traction, pre-everything is still an easy exercise. And that's also, I guess, why you get heavily rewarded as a fund if you do get it right. But I think it's more about sometimes I'm quite process driven in the sense that I think that if you have a good process, if you have a good fund model, if you have enough shots of goal, so to say, you will probably end up in a good position eventually, even though it's really hard to maybe be able to say, hey, this company is going to be the fund returner in, in, in 10 years' time. I think it's more about making sure that you're building the fund in a way that you can afford to be wrong at some times and that the fund model will, will a lot of time drive returns for you, even though obviously that's not everything. But I think it's really important to have that in place and be process-driven and not say, that, oh, this company did super well, and and therefore, you know, this this was the, you know, not being what would you say posteriori like focused in the sense that focusing on the outcome, but rather focusing on what did we do right, what did we do wrong in, in the process of both evaluating the company, but also in, in structuring this fund. Then just looking at outcomes and saying, oh, we passed on this and they just raised a series B from a great investor. Did we, did we, you know, fuck up here? I don't think that's always super useful because so much can happen in between that point and, and the exit. So I think you have to be you have to always keep tweaking your processes but you have to trust the process you put in place and follow that rather than being too like reactive and just you know be too upset about we 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 passed on this deal and someone in someone came in and did it or we missed out on this deal and you know having FOMO and making that push your model I think sometimes can be not as beneficial as just have faith in in your own ability to find good deals and have faith in your in in the model that you build. But who am I to? I mean, I've been in this industry for two years. I've only seen the bull market. At the end of the day, maybe this is all bullshit. But this is my current view of of the market and how to to deal with VC. But I mean, as I said, limited sample set. I've you know, and I see so many companies. I haven't seen a full fund work out. So yeah, this is just based, I guess, on <laughs> my limited experience and other people's thoughts on it that I respect. And talking of early learnings and, and potentially goals, 
having recently moved to London and, and being the face of the fund in a new city, do you, or rather, have you set yourself any goals of what you want to achieve within the UK tech ecosystem? Any goals that I want to do? I think doing a deal would be a good start, I guess. We actually did a deal in London quite recently that's about to be announced. Nice. So, so done. Um, done and dusted. People yeah. Just relax for the rest of the year. No. no <laughs> not really. Right. No, but I think London is still, despite Brexit, is still the centre of venture capital. It's when US funds decide to relocate to Europe or start up a European office, London's still number one choice. If you look at the VC landscape i still think there's about twice as many vcs in london as there is in Berlin, which is the second largest city for vc london is the place to be still i think there's going to be there's definitely going to be some type of maybe shift on the founder side we're already seeing that to some degree we're speaking to people in the ecosystem that we can't really set up a company in london because we're struggling with visas we're struggling in general to maybe find the, the right talent i think Talent attraction and that whole visa process will be an obstacle down the line when deciding on where to set up your 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 head office as a startup, especially if you're pan-European or that sort of thing. And maybe maybe it will just shift into people being remote. So you know you have some people who can work from the UK, stay in the UK, and then maybe someone stays in Eastern Europe and in like Bucharest, or maybe some people in Berlin and some people in Madrid. I think we've seen that quite a bit already, like fully remote teams and people being based across Europe. Also as effective of COVID, right? And, and the shift towards remote, but also slightly driven, I guess, to the fact that it might be difficult to get everyone the ability to move to London and work there because of the, well, the, the visa issue, right? And the, and the Brexit. Yeah, so that would be, but my, my goals in London is just, you know, being more immersed in the ecosystem, keep going to events, keep meeting people, you know, already quite doing a lot of fun stuff. We have this, uh, five-a-side game every every week that we play football together i'm going to an event tonight where we have you know drinks and and that sort of thing so it's being meeting people in person building like actual tangible relationships and and getting to know more of the london ecosystem both on the founder side and the investor side for sure nice it's it's great to hear that you're going to so many events because i think covid all completely shut down and one of the best things I find about VCs particularly in London is the number of activities and fun things that are planned and I'm pretty sure that I fed myself from from some of these amazing VC events and they have quality food I'm not gonna lie so I I, I look forward to in our next call with a very serious deal flow that we also may or may not discuss the events that we've been to and, and the quality of food, which I'm very interested in at, at each and every single one of them. <laughs> all make I sure to, to meet in person and actually have, have a meal in person again, like when we went to Lino's in Berlin. Yeah, exactly. It was really nice. To scoot a bit back to you, one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, talking to you about in our private conversations is behavioral economics and maybe how it applies to looking at consumer companies and I think people would really appreciate hearing that because I, I find it fascinating. Sure I mean I'm by no means an expert I'd say but I did I did study and I have a genuine interest I think in, in behavioral science and decision making and you know all the that comes with that you know classic like thinking about biases or thinking about in general you know how people 
just act and why they they do it. And I think you can you can extrapolate a lot of those things to the product and thinking about customer journey. And so I think in general, when I look at because I do look, as I said before, quite a lot of consumer businesses, and I try try to view that from a behavioral science lens. So onboarding, for example, I think it for me is really, really vital that if you're building like consumer social, you're building an app, the time to magic has to be really, really short. People have short attention spans. And you know, if you if your onboarding is too complicated or too long, it, people will just drop out immediately there. And you will see like the funnels is struggling to convert from download to to account and to activity. So you know, thinking about that is it's a clear like behavioral science thing. And just in general, think about product, how to how to design things, different features, where to place it how to create like, like an internal economy on a, on a, on a platform and, and try to promote monetization and things like that. All of that psychology, right? All of that's behavioral science and, 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 and choice architecture. It's about thinking how to <laughs> optimize the interest of, of, of both the company and, and the user in an optimal way so that the users get enough value out of it to want to spend time and potentially spend money there. And then for, for the company itself to, to obviously uh, build a successful platform app so i think behavioral science is very much valid as a as a background for especially understanding consumer play but also with, with SaaS, i think you know these days there's a lot more product-led growth there's a lot more prosumer type of styles and the end consumer ends up being more actually in the b2c side so i think there's so many sectors of, of the economy today and in, in, in vc where you can apply behavioral science to to make better decisions and how to design product and and user journeys and and thinking about these very integral decisions that you have to make as a company yeah super interesting and i think maybe also to highlight the importance of behavioral psychology that isn't often emphasized enough in terms of a role of associates convincing others in your team to be on board with your investment opportunity having to pitch your to your team that it's a good idea and i i was wondering whether whether you would say that's also an integral part of your job as it is mine no 100 the ic doesn't look exactly the same way as it does for you guys so i didn't think normally if you <laughs> if you have a good idea and strong conviction behind it people tend to trust you with that and you don't have to do that much internal selling, which is also good because it means we can move faster. And you don't have to like do 50 slides to like convince everyone that, and especially people are already on board because they know what's going on. So it's not like an external IC where people come in and they, they don't have the context, but they know exactly already what you're talking about, which helps sense, which makes sense and helps you in, in speed. But psychology is, is so much of all, like as I talked about earlier, DC being a bit of a sales job and being relationship driven. I mean, that's all psychology, right? So thinking about, I think there's two ways to think about it. I think I had a lot of discussions about this with, with other investors and I think it's really interesting, the VC landscape, how some relationships are more transactional and some relationships are more, what would you say, like, you know, long-term driven or like with no end goal in sight. And I think having more of these like, long-term relationships where it's not quid pro quo where that's why i try to not share deals with you francesca because i'm more focused on building a relationship and when it's relevant you know we'll discuss deals i don't want to end up in a position where i'm just like hey let's jump on a call and just just expose our, our affinity to each other and then see that as a relationship building exercise because i think it's not i think it's much more important to build and do like what you would call infinite games so that you don't see it as a as a 
Game theory exercise where you're trying to just milk that other person for a good deal flow because it probably will never happen because they will see you as a transactional transactional character. Much more building like foundational relationships that means that you get to know the other person you know, on a, on a personal level as well, and you discuss other things and just deals and you know try to. I, I've made some, I'd say, like friends in the ecosystem that I would you know happy to spend time with outside of work as well, and I think because of VC is the way it is, like. Up until uh, recently, we didn't have anyone at my fund who was close to me in age. I was the youngest by like six, seven years, meaning that my colleagues and, you know, the, the peers of me, mine is predominantly at other funds. And people ask me like, oh, but they're competitors. Like if you're not in VC, people ask you, why are you hanging out and spending so much time with competitors? But I think VC as, a, as an exercise is quite collaborative. And I think that bouncing off ideas and, and thinking about deals together and just being able to spend time with people that's in the same peer group and has you know similar backgrounds just makes your life so much better both in terms of refining your thinking but also from a social point of view especially now during covid you know having those interactions made the, um, the job so much more fun i think so thinking about building infinite you know playing infinite games and building long-term relationships rather than being transactional and maybe also at some point i think it's hard to do that with 50 people. So maybe narrowing down also to the people that you feel that you are really challenging your thinking and that you're having a good time with and spending more time with them would be my suggestion on how to like think about this. But definitely all grounded in psychology, right? For sure. Mm. Super, super good tip there. And speaking of teams, so raising new funds, that normally means there might be a few new hires on the card. Is that something that your team is thinking of? So at the moment, we're actually looking to potentially expand the team, um, especially on the junior side. So if you're, you know, one or two years of experience or, or straight out of, out of uni, you definitely do reach out. I think we will start our formal process slightly later down the line. But if you're interested, do, do reach out and we can take a look for sure. Nice. Super, super exciting. And other than the fact that maybe a little bit of operational experience might be helpful, what other characteristics slash experiences are you looking for something i alluded to earlier i think intellectual curiosity is very important so we always ask in the process like tell us about things that you know you're really passionate about that is not work related because we want to make sure that people have interest and that they are passionate about things and not only you know my life is vc where we want people who have a life outside and do think about things and have other interests as well and another really good thing that we found is we have interns as well and I think my experience with it, the best interns are normally the ones that, you know, having the, the confidence and being like being proactive, but also being confident enough to speak up, voice their opinions, like being opinionated. I think you have to be as a VC, you have to, which makes the job difficult, right? You have to have very strong opinion about things based on very little tangible information. So you have to be very comfortable with making decisions, especially in early stage VC on very limited information. If you feel that, it's it's difficult or you feel that that you're struggling with with the concept of making an investment decision sometimes based on no data and and very limited information then early stage vc might be a, a difficult job to do very well i think then you're better off i think in a in a more growth environment when you have a lot more data to to go on so you need to be comfortable when making you know having an opinion and making making up a thesis or something like that on on very limited information and then being able to to both sell that and and 
and stand behind our internally. Obviously, I think there's this idea of, and people, I don't know if it's a bit of a cliche, but like having like strong, strong opinions held loosely, meaning that, you know, you need to be back, you need to be able to back your current thought or current idea. But at the same time, if new information comes up or, you know, there's something that will change that, you also need to be flexible in your thinking enough to, to be able to reassess and, 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 and see if you will come to a new decision with the, with the new information. And, and this goes back to what I talked to you about before, right? Process and thinking about information and thinking about philosophy as well, right? So thinking about terms like a priori and a posteriori and thinking about what information do you have at the moment? What type of decisions can you make from that? And then, you know, if those assumptions that the decision or the conclusion is based upon changes, then obviously I don't think you should be stubborn enough to say, I'm still sticking, but rather be open-minded and think about what implications will this have for, for the case that I've built. So being able to have two thoughts in your head at the same time and being able to, to balance that, but still being able to push your current opinion with that uncertainty in the back of your head is a little bit of a unique skill, but also something that's really vital for, for early stage investing, I think. And then there are lots of other things, right? You know, you know being a, a good person that, that likes talking to people and like building relationships and, you know, understanding, well, not necessarily, you don't have to be like, I've worked with startups in VC for a long time, but more like having an interest in technology and being fascinated by biotechnological solutions and the impact it has on the world and, and those things. And I think that's definitely a, somewhat of a prerequisite that being interested in technology, you need to have some minimal level there to be really good at your job as well. That was great. That was a pretty good tour of you know the, the qualities that make a good investor, especially in, in, in our industry, which is, which is particularly niche. Sebastian, are there any types of people that you would like reaching out to you? And if so, how would they reach you? I think in general, I'm, I'm always happy to, to speak to interesting people, whether it's uh, founders trying to build something truly, truly revolutionary or whether it's you know people who are interested in talking about the impact of psychology and philosophy on, on, on investing and most of the things I, I, I mentioned today. So just ping me on LinkedIn is normally the best way to get in touch and uh, yeah happy to, to talk to people and find it really I mean that's one of the reasons why I went into this industry as well I, I like talking to new people and getting new perspectives and things so if you feel like you can add something and even better if you have a, a great business behind it as well feel free to to reach out happy to talk thank you so much for doing this episode Seb it's been great talking to you thank you to our listeners as well you can also reach out to us at associated underscore pod um, on Twitter. And if you want to email us, our email is associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.